The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. Yeah, it's called Conversations with Jeff, not Screaming Matches. Yeah, yeah I, I, you and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on mm-hmm. when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Right. Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Now, this week's actually going to be a lot busier over here on this Facebook page. We're going to be doing a live stream episode of Conversations with Jeff every day this week. And then uh, we may even be rolling this out uh, next week as well. I know a lot of you guys are staying at home, uh, you know, watching Netflix, watching TV, watching movies, that sort of thing. But we figure we might as well just keep putting out content give you guys uh, some more information, hear more perspectives, that sort of thing um, as well. So uh, we've got um, our guest today that I'll introduce to you here in a second. Uh, tomorrow we're going to have Jerry Wayne on the show. He's the, he's the guy that uh, Joe Biden cussed out uh, at uh, talking about AR-14s, which, is, which will be a fascinating conversation. Uh, we've got Pastor Sam Jones coming up on Thursday. Friday, we've got Dustin Faulkner. Uh, we uh, may even be having a show on Saturday. Monday, we've got Dr. Mike Spaulding, and we're just uh, booking people uh, like crazy right now. So it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of conversations, a lot of different perspectives, uh, and that sort of thing. And then also, just as a reminder to everybody as well, we've got our book out right now, Social Injustice. Uh, with um, you know authors, everybody from like Dr. Andy Woods, Brandon House, myself. Uh, Pastor Sam Jones, the forwards by Michael Massey. Uh, I've got 12 different authors all tackling the issue of social justice. Uh, if you guys want more information on that, you can go over to socialinjusticebook.com uh, and you guys can always order that and we'll get that right out to you as well. Uh, really excited about our guest today and the conversation we're going to have. We've got Dr. Cal Weisner uh, on the show and um, you're with the uh, Cornwall Alliance um, and Really excited to have you on. I'm glad we could sit down and have this conversation. Thanks very much, Jeff. Great yeah, to be with you. Definitely. And and so for people that maybe aren't as familiar with your with your organization, uh, what's your primary focus, and uh, and what's what's like your main mission that you've got going on? Uh, probably the quickest way to say it is the way my wife prefers to do it. She just tells people we're trying to save the planet from the people who are trying to save the planet. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we're a we're a network of just under seventy scholars. Uh, about a third of them are natural scientists, a third economists and policy wonks, and a third theologians, philosophers, ethicists, pastors, uh, who are working together to educate the public and policymakers on, on three things interwoven with each other. The first one is biblical earth stewardship. Uh, the second is economic development for the very poor. And the third is uh, the gospel and the whole biblical worldview, theology, and ethics that come along with it. So... In terms of biblical earth stewardship, what we mean is the fulfillment of the mandate that God gives us in Genesis 1:28, where having created Adam and Eve, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. 
everything in it. And that dominion needs to be not exploitative and abusive, but godly. And it should reflect God's own activity. And what we learn about God in the earlier verses of Genesis 1 is that he brings uh, everything out of nothing. He brings order out of chaos, light out of darkness, life out of non-life, and a great variety of life, and so on. So we kind of summarize biblical earth stewardship as, as enhancing the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth for the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. The second is economic development for the very poor, not looking so much in terms of individuals or a family here or there, isolated, but what are the indispensable conditions for whole societies to rise and stay out of poverty? And we can, we can, we, pardon me, we identify those as a group of five social institutions plus one very important material uh, condition. The social institutions are private property rights, uh, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. And the material condition is access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And unfortunately, an awful lot of environmental policy uh, really undercuts both of those things. And then finally, of course, the gospel of Christ. Uh, and this is important because God made his world to be understood, uh, to be understood by people made in his image. But as long as we're in rebellion against him, we're not going to understand it well, and we're not going to exercise a godly dominion over it. So we're concerned, obviously, for the uh, eternal destiny of souls. We're also concerned about reconciling people to God through Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, so that they can learn to think God's thoughts after him and use the world the way God intends us to. Yeah. Now, now, the the interesting thing that I always find is like when you're talking to especially like conservative Christians, they hear environment and all of a sudden a wall goes up and they kind of bristle and the, and they're like, well, that's a, that's a very liberal progressive thing to be focused on. We're not we we're not supposed to worry about that as Christians. So if, if somebody's like responds in that way, what what's your main response to that? Well, one, I can assure them that I share a lot of that same uh, uh, reaction to the environmentalist movement. Environmentalism has a very, very poor past in, in a number of different ways. For one thing, it has made all kinds of predictions of great environmental disaster around the corner that have turned out false. Uh, it's just very much prone to exaggerating risks. Uh, second, most of the environmental movement rests on a very anti-biblical worldview, actually either one of two. One is a secular humanist, materialist, uh, often Marxist-Leninist worldview uh, that uh, denies the reality of God and uh, therefore misunderstands his creation, misunderstands human beings made in his nature, in, in his image, uh, and misunderstands right and wrong. The other common worldview for many environmentalists is a pantheistic Eastern sort of worldview where God is everything. And that is to sacralize all of nature and to set it off uh, untouchable by humans. Most environmentalists tend to think that uh, nature is best untouched by human hands, whereas the Bible tells us that we are supposed to, supposed to subdue and rule it. Uh, so those are a number of different ways that we differ from environmentalism which is why we speak in terms of biblical earth stewardship instead. And that simply comes from the fact that uh, God tells us that we're supposed to subdue and rule the earth. And we really want to do that in a way that reflects God because we're made in his image. And so we learn that from how God himself uses his world, how God himself made his world, designed it, and so on. And then, of course, the, the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor implies that we should be taking good care of this earth. Um, because if we don't, we hurt our, our neighbors. Uh, pollution, if it's at, at high enough levels, can be uh, very, very harmful to people's health and even to their lives. Uh, you know, we don't want to waste resources. We, we want to use them in a, in a godly way and, and make sure that uh, future generations can use them as well. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things that a lot of times I'll, I'll talk about when I'm talking to people about about this kind of issue is that I think what happens is the left right now, they, they put a really big focus on the global warming and the climate change. 
Um, whereas I feel like something that a lot of Christians can come around to would be the issue of pollution because of the uh, because of the side effects of that and what it causes and the disease yeah. and the and just messing up the earth in general. Um, where do you yes. kind of come down on that on that main issue? Yeah. Well, you know, global warming or climate change is uh, definitely the elephant in the living room, so to speak, of environmental issues, and it really shouldn't be. Um, let me first clarify, uh, when most people talk about global warming or climate change nowadays, what they have in mind is not simply global warming, not simply climate change, but global warming or climate change driven overwhelmingly by human activity and dangerous to the point of being catastrophic, uh, possibly even an existential threat to humanity, and uh, uh, of such a nature as to make it uh, justifiable to spend scores to hundreds of trillions of dollars that we could otherwise spend on such things as providing purified drinking water and sewage sanitation and nutrition supplements and and safe housing and transportation and so on to the couple of billion people around the world who still lack those things, including uh, grid-based electricity. Uh, all of those would be far more important to human health and long life than anything having to do with a little change in global average temperature. Uh, the Cornwall Alliance, uh, and we have some of the world's top climate scientists among our scholars, for example, Dr. Roy Spencer of the University of Alabama at Huntsville, who's a NASA award-winning climatologist. We think that, uh, that, yes, global average temperature has risen probably something in the neighborhood of 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius since the middle of the 19th century. And we think that probably since about 1960, human emission of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases has been a significant contributor to that, possibly even the majority contributor since 1960. Uh, but we also think that it's not particularly dangerous, that the benefits probably outweigh the risks, even just in terms of temperature, because um, the warming occurs mostly toward the poles, mostly in the winter and mostly at night, not toward the equator, not in the summer and not during the daytime, i.e. it raises low temperatures and doesn't really affect high temperatures very much. That means longer growing seasons, more, more arable land, more food for everybody. Uh, that's all good stuff. And then besides that, the carbon dioxide that we add to the atmosphere increases plant growth and, again, makes more food available for everybody. So, so we think that that's the case uh, and, and that global warming is, is one thing, again, uh, among many, but that other environmental issues are significantly more, uh, more high risk to human beings, such as um, water pollution, especially in developing countries where Pathogens uh, often are, are found in, in drinking water and water in which people wash their clothes and so on. Uh, and uh, especially um, you know, localized air pollution. Uh, for instance, in, in much of sub-Saharan Africa, people use wood and dried dung as their primary cooking and heating fuels. And the smoke from that, the World Health Organization estimates, kills somewhere in the neighborhood of two to four million people a year, mostly women and young children. Uh, and if that were replaced even by the dirtiest <laughs> electric power generating plants right next door, their air would be much cleaner and they would be much healthier. And of course, we don't have to put the dirtiest electric power plants next door. We can, we can put them, you know, several miles away and, and build a grid and be much, much cleaner. Yeah, yeah, and and I feel like that that's the, that's really interesting, like what you were talking about, especially when it comes to when the warming occurs and things along those lines. Because again, that's not something that's ever talked about, and I feel like what ends up happening is everybody just talks about these things in broad, overarching terms, and nobody actually wants to get yes. into the details. And I feel like that's really what causes a lot of the outrage and the uproar in a lot of issues, you know, that we're that we're facing today as a country is that. They'll take things that are, you know, broad, broad aspects and not actually look at the details. And then everybody just like freaks out about it. And I feel like we're seeing that, you know, even today with what's going on with everything with like the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's definitely a common thing. And part of it, of course, is simply because uh, so much of what we learn, we learn through the news media. 
And having been a newspaper reporter, editor, and publisher myself in the past, in some respects, I can be sympathetic to reporters because most of them are extremely busy. Uh, they rarely cover the same subject in their articles more than once every month or so. They don't have the time to become expert on complicated issues. And climate change is an extremely complicated issue. It's much easier for the media simply to parrot the, the announcements of various different environmental advocacy groups uh, to, you know, to put out, to, to just further the, the information and press releases and things like that. That's difficult. But two, there is the problem that a lot of the news media are, in fact, very, uh, very biased toward making uh, catastrophic claims. There's a reason for that among journalists. There's a, a popular statement, bad news is good news, good news is no news. And that's because uh, for some strange reason, people are psychologically more prone to look at uh, news about catastrophes than about wonderful good things happening. Well, that's important to people in the, in the media because that means eyeballs, and eyeballs mean uh, advertising paid, and advertising pays the bills. <laughs> so they give us the bad news, and they pretty well ignore the, the good news, and that's rather a shame. And then, of course, politicians have a, an incentive to exaggerate the problems because the bigger the problems seem, the more we're willing to give them control over li our lives to solve the problems. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, think, and, I, and I think kind of going along with that, too, a lot of the things with like politicians is that they're not actually look, looking to fix the problem because I feel like they always need that fight in order to raise the money and keep the power. Because as long as there's the fight, then they can drum up the support and things like that to go against the other side kind of a thing. And I feel like when, whether it's dealing with like climate change, environmental issues or illegal immigration or whatever it is, it's like it just seems like they don't actually want to fix the problem. Yeah. And of course, you know, we can't just totally overgeneralize about that. There are, strangely enough, there are honest, godly people in politics. Uh, and then there are the people on the opposite end of the scale right. as well. There are honest, godly people in, in the news media, too. And there are the ones on the opposite end of the scale. So, you know, what we need to do as, as uh, believing Christians is to do what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. He says, test all things, hold fast what is good. Now, that is just absolutely crucial. It's been essentially my life verse since, uh, oh, 45 years ago, 50 years ago. And uh, uh, it really is the basis of science, too. Uh, science is all about testing things, looking for evidence. And if our guesses about how the world works yield predictions that are contradicted by observational evidence, then those guesses are wrong. And unfortunately, an awful lot of people in climate science have pretty well forgotten that. And so they trust entirely in computerized global climate models rather than in the actual empirical measurements. And the climate models, on average, predict mm, two to three times the actual warming observed over the last roughly 40 years since we began using satellites to observe it. And that means the models are wrong, so they give no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature and therefore no rational basis for any policy having to do with it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it seems like every 10 years or so, they say we've only got 10 or 12 years left if we don't if we don't fix the problem. And then the 10 years comes and it's like, oh, well, we were wrong. So we're going to give it another 10 or 12 years. Like, again, yeah. is, is that primarily because of the computer models there? Uh, whether it comes every roughly 10 years or not, I'm not sure is dependent on the computer models. It's the computer models that are the sole source of predictions of dangerous global warming. Uh, no empirical evidence uh, upholds those predictions. So you know, the, the modeling is the real problem there. Um, why these sorts of predictions come up about every 10 years, actually maybe a little bit more frequently than that if you've mm -hmm. really followed closely over the uh, roughly 35 years that, uh, that people have really been uptight about global warming. Um, you know, it's it's like uh, it takes people about 10 years, takes the public about 10 years to forget the last crazy false prediction. 
And so you don't want to make a crazy false prediction while the public still remembers the last one. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's, that's the interesting thing, I think, like looking at somebody like, you know, we had Al Gore and his documentary. And then I feel like now we're kind of reiterating everything with, with AOC and a lot of the stuff that she's pushing with now with like sure. the, the Green New Deal and all that kind of stuff. And so it just it just seems like, you know, it's always we're at the end of the world. We have to make these drastic changes. Now, those changes that they're suggesting are th- are those changes actually wrong or is it just based? Is it like the wrong premise that they're putting forward? Well, I think they're they're wrong in many very important ways. Uh, let me just illustrate by addressing the biggest agreement ever reached to fight global warming. That is the Paris agreement that was uh, formulated in, in uh, 2015, signed by 194 countries in 2016. Um, several countries have removed themselves from it. The United States is in the process right now and, and will complete that in November, shortly after the presidential election. Uh, but most countries are still onto it. Um, if you assume that the people who supported the Paris Agreement are right about how much warming comes from added carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then full implementation of every promise made by every country to the Paris Agreement would, by the end of this century, reduce global average temperature by only three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. That's too little for anybody to feel. It's too little to have any significant impact on any ecosystem. It's essentially totally irrelevant. But, again, if you assume that they are right about the costs of implementation, those costs can run anywhere from a low of about a million, uh, pardon me, a trillion dollars a year worldwide to a high of about two trillion dollars a year worldwide. That means... 70 to $140 trillion from 2030, which is when the promises are supposed to take effect, to the end of the century. That's 23.3 to $46.6 trillion per tenth of a degree Fahrenheit of temperature reduction in global average temperature, which, by the way, nobody experiences. (laughs) The only temperature that's relevant to anybody, people, animals, plants, ecosystems, The only relevant temperature is local, not global. And, you know, if if we're talking about 23.3 trillion to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree reduction in global average temperature, I'm not at all surprised that the author of the book, The Art of the Deal, thought that was not a good deal and decided to pull the U.S. out. Yeah, I mean, it that is, that is a very that is a very good point. Uh, but but you know, I th- I think the question then becomes is so we as Christians and as believers, and we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, the left doesn't have the answer because they're they're pushing this this Paris Agreement, they're pushing this ideology, right? That clearly it's not yeah. actually going to fix anything. But then I feel like a lot of times what's happening is like the Republicans and the conservatives are saying, look, we can't, you know, there's nothing to do about the environment. You know, we're just going to go on and, you know, push big business, push, you know, it doesn't really matter if we're polluting as much, all this kind of stuff. So when we're looking at the response there, I feel like the response to a certain degree is kind of somewhere in the middle a little bit. Well, I I think probably so. And, And it differs on, you know, depending on which issue we have in mind. I'm so convinced that man-made climate change is not a significant threat that I would say that doing absolutely nothing about it is certainly the preferred response. What we should be doing is adapting, you know, being prepared to adapt no matter what the future climate is, whether it's warmer or colder. And, and geologic history, by the way, assures us that it will be colder sometime in the future. Uh, and it'll be warmer sometime in the future. We need to adapt. We need to be, need, need to prepare to to uh, live well, no matter what the global temperature is. Well, what's crucial to that is economic development. If you have income equivalent to, say, the bottom tenth of Americans, uh, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert or the Brazilian rainforest. If you're living on the equivalent of, say, $2 a day per person, 
uh, extreme poverty. You can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. Poverty is a far greater risk than anything related to climate and weather. Uh, and, and so since the efforts to slow or stop or reverse global warming all involve huge reductions in, in uh, economic development, uh, especially because they deprive people of uh, access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, which goes into everything that we make, food, clothing, shelter, everything else, right? Because of that, that means that fighting global warming does a great deal of harm, especially to the poor around the world, which is essentially my motivation for being involved in this battle anyway. But there are other environmental issues, uh, localized pollution issues, air and water pollution and, and the like, that can be tackled and, and to a large extent have been tackled very, very well. Uh, I have a booklet called Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? that's available from Cornwall Alliance. Uh, people just go to cornwallalliance.org and go to our online school uh, stu uh, store. Uh, is Capitalism in Bad for the Environment? Uh, explains why, since capitalism produces more wealth and gets it into more hands than socialism does, capitalism is actually a very good way to protect the environment. Because in essence, socialism takes a lot of property out of private hands and puts it in public hands. Well, I've got a question for you. Do you find more graffiti on public bathroom walls or your bathroom wall at home? That's, that, that's a very good point. <laughs> Obviously, public bathroom walls. And why? Because nobody really has any incentive to take care of them. But you do at home. You have an incentive to take care of your private bathroom walls so you don't find graffiti there. Uh, similarly, for all sorts of other kinds of property. Private property rights are essential not only to economic development, but also to the protection of the environment. It's when it's held in common that it's worst hurt. And I outline the history of environmental disasters in socialist countries and compare them with capitalist countries. Then I answer the various different arguments against capitalism and show that they're mistaken. Yeah, well, I, I feel like what ends up happening is you you always have uh, you always have the examples of like Flint, Michigan, right? And everybody always point to that and say this is why we need to take this away from the big bad corporations and we need to give the power back to the quote unquote people. And by the people, they mean the big government. And so, like, what, what, what's the response to that? Well, of course, you know, we need to look at each individual circumstance and, and figure causes and effects and the like. Uh, first off, um, the, the, the occurrence in Flint, Michigan, was largely a problem of government decision. The, uh, the Flint government, city, city government, decided to switch Flint's uh, drinking water source uh, to one that could not keep up with demand. And in the process, they shifted to, uh, to some outmoded, uh, some very old, worn out uh, supply pipes. And that's what led to the increased lead levels in the water in Flint. Um, now that's a part of it, but the, another part of it is that frankly, the blood lead levels in Flint never exceeded uh, a level that has ever been shown to have any adverse health effects. So although people were saying that uh, especially children in Flint were being subjected to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, dangerous levels of lead in their drinking water and hence in their blood, the reality is they never were. Uh, this is one more example of an, of, of an environmental hazard being greatly exaggerated. Uh, but that was a that was more a government problem than a, a business problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean businesses can do bad things. So can governments. One of the things that we need to remember, of course, is that businesses don't have the legal right to coerce you, to force you, to essentially put a gun to your head and say you're coming with us or else. Right? right. Businesses can't do that. They have influence. They don't have power. The state is, by definition, the legal monopoly of force. And it's a whole lot more dangerous than businesses.
Yeah, yeah, and and I think and I think that you know with that too, it's it's also one of those things where like like you're saying like they don't have the power of force that the government has. It's like you know they. I feel like everybody always talks about like uh, big business influence in politics. It's like they may be influencing. They they could be putting out advertisements. They could be putting out promotions. They could be putting money behind a particular candidate. But that doesn't necessarily give them the ultimate power. It gives them maybe more influence than somebody else. Whereas right. if you give the full control to the government, all of a sudden, who do, you, who do you appeal to if they make a wrong decision? You can appeal to yeah. somebody if Pepsi-Cola makes a wrong decision in their soda. You can't appeal <laughs> to anybody. Buy Coke instead. Well, there is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I pointed this out in my booklet, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? And by the way, it just occurs to me, tell you what, for any of your listeners on this program, if they will go to cornwallalliance.org and make a donation of any size, any size at all, and request, is capitalism bad for the environment, will send it to them for free, and 100% of their gift will be tax deductible. At any rate, in that booklet, um, I, uh, I tell the story of how the former Soviet Union ruined the Aral Sea. Uh, the Aral Sea was once the fifth largest freshwater lake in the world, uh, and it, uh, it, it was tremendously salinized because the Soviet Union reversed the flow of a tributary river. Uh, so the lake lost, um, I've forgotten the exact percentage, but it was well over half the water in the lake over a period of years. It lost much more than half its uh, land area, its surface area. And the result was tremendous salination, which killed most of the fish population and which poisoned the surrounding land and uh, caused significant temperature changes because the lake could no longer moderate either the heat in summer or the cold in winter. And so the whole area around it basically became dead and windstorms instead of just blowing water blew dust from the killed land that uh, poisoned millions and millions of acres, uh, even thousands and thousands of square miles uh, downwind from that. That was all done by a government. And in fact, all over the world, the greatest environmental disasters are caused by governments, not by private businesses. And that's, that's true equally in, in uh, Western capitalist nations, uh, uh, democratic nations, as well as social and socialist nations, even in the United States. Not as great problems as elsewhere, but still far bigger than done by business. Right, right, and that makes perfect sense. And now, one of the things that you were talking about earlier, too, was that the bigger threat and the bigger issue that we really need to focus on is actual poverty. And I think that, you know, and I feel like that's one of those things that, that, like, when you look at the, when you look at the Democratic debates right now, that's one of the things that people like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are really making a big push on, is we we need to care for the poor, you know, and they always talk about, like, the one-tenth of the one percent own more wealth than 50 percent of the rest of Americans, and, but in the grand scheme of things, when you compare poverty in other countries versus the poverty here, I'm always fascinated at how drastic of a change that is. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, uh, 30 years ago when I wrote my book, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, I ran the numbers on America's poor versus Europe's average people. At that time, and this is still close to the same now, although I haven't continued you know, on an annual basis uh, checking the precise data, but it's still pretty close to true. Uh, the average American poor family had uh, nearly double the purchasing power of the average European family. That's in countries like France and Great Britain and Germany and Spain and so on. Uh, the average American family lived in a larger home, was more likely to own its own home, uh, was more likely to own a car, indeed two or even three cars, to own its own refrigerator and television and multiple televisions, uh, on and on. Everything you can list in every uh, material possession, the average American poor family had more than the average European family, not poor European family. Uh, so 
Americans are wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice for the vast majority of people around the world, and certainly for the <laughs> overwhelming majority of people throughout human history. And very, very few Americans uh, suffer anything like the standard poverty that prevails in developing countries. I lived for a time in India, Calcutta, India. As a little child, I actually, every morning, uh, was walked from my parents' home to an Indian family's home. And along the way, I would step over the bodies of people who had died of starvation and disease overnight and hadn't been picked up yet by the trucks to take away and burn. Uh, that's, that's horrendous, and most Americans have never seen anything remotely like that. That's a large part of what motivates me to, to try to bring some sanity to the whole environmental discussion because so much environmental policy really slows, stops, or reverses economic development. And so it traps people in poverty that is far worse than anything the environmental problems can cause. Yeah, and, and I think and I think one of the things that a lot of people often talk about when it comes to dealing with the poverty issue is – like the conservatives will often say that we need to, we need to deregulate, 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 and then other people say, well, that's going to hurt the environment if you take away the regulations. But at a certain point, you also look at the fact that if you take away a lot of the if you, or if you have a lot of those re regulations in place, that stops business, business stops income. It's it's this kind of like trickle down effect that then becomes a really big problem. And when you look at a lot of these third world countries, I mean, those governments are very overbearing on their people. It's virtually impossible to really create your own income or not rely specifically on the government for anything. And I feel like that's really the extreme of what of what we're looking at when it comes to governmental control. And we look at that poverty and it's like, okay, so now what do we do about that kind of a thing? Yeah, um, you know, for, for one thing, some government regulation of, uh, of environmental issues, I think, makes good sense. Uh, uh, I, I think it's far better to regulate in terms of total emissions than to regulate the specific technology that a, that a business needs to use. Uh, in fact, a lot of a lot of studies have shown over the years that uh, that simply regulating total emissions instead of technologies works a whole lot better. The, the emissions decline better. Uh, because what happens is that companies that can reduce emissions rather cheaply do a whole lot of that. And companies for whom it's more expensive to do that uh, do less. But the result is a, a cleaner overall environment because of that. Um, another thing that happens with a lot of regulation, uh, and unfortunately this is even the case with emissions uh, restrictions, is that uh, it tends to cut off the resort that people can have to tort action, to lawsuits in court. Uh, if, if a company can show that it has complied with regulations about what technology must be used, or even about how much of uh, carbon monoxide or mercury or whatever it's emitting, then it can presumptively prevail in court by simply saying, we followed the law, we, we satisfied the, the regulation, and that makes them largely immune, immune to suit. Under common law, tort law, uh, if a company is uh, emitting something that is poisoning your air or your water, and you, to go, you go to court, the judge can simply order that company to cease and desist. Period. Doesn't matter how much it costs that company. And so actually, tort action is, I think, a much uh, more effective way to protect the environment than most regulation. But some regulations do make good sense. The Clean Water Act, I think, has had significantly uh, greater benefits than costs associated with it. The Clean Air Act, it seems to be, is the opposite uh, in terms of historical studies of the impact of those two. Yeah, yeah. And it, so then when we're when we're looking at the actual poverty problem, we're looking across the world, you look at you look at third world countries and what what's the solution in all reality from the Christian perspective to this poverty issue 
that is so vitally important. Because, I, I, again, you, you look at some people, you know, people that are more progressive, they'll say we need more we need more government, we need more handouts, and however that would be in place in whatever country you're in. Or you look at business, but if you're looking at a third world country with a dictator or whatever it is, it's not like you can necessarily start a business. What's the actual solution here? Well, the first solution might just be some patience. It takes a long time for whole societies to rise and stay out of poverty. It takes a long time for whole societies to come to understand the basic principles of social order that make that possible, to come to understand the physical conditions necessary for that to be possible. It took hundreds of years, literally over 700 years, for the the Anglo-speaking peoples of the world to develop a private property rights regime where we not only acknowledge private property, but also have ways of enforcing it and ways of legally recognizing it so that, for example, I could I could uh, get a mortgage loan from a bank in Washington state for my home in Tennessee. The bank would never have seen the home, but it could have seen the deed for the home and it would see the the price at which I bought it and would know therefore what it had as collateral. This is very important and, and you cannot raise capital without private property rights and without enforcing of private property rights. It took 700 years for the Anglo-speaking peoples to develop that. Uh, some countries are doing it faster but we shouldn't expect them to do it in a decade or two. It's a very rare thing for it to go very quickly. So patience is one thing. Another thing is, is that we all need to learn economic history. We need to know how countries did rise out of poverty and why some countries didn't. You know, the really important, the really interesting question is not what makes some people poor, that's how we're born. You know, Job said, naked kind of came I into the world, naked shall I return, right? That's the natural condition of mankind. The really interesting question is, why are some places rich? And economic history can help tell us that. And as I mentioned early on, there's, there are five social institutions that are absolutely indispensable to that. Private property rights, entrepreneurship, uh, free, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. And then there's one particular material condition necessary to it, access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. You got those, and a society can and will rise out of poverty. Insofar as you lack those, you will slow, stop, or even reverse a society's rise out of poverty. But we have to have some patience to work these things through bit by bit. Obviously, charitable work helps but it helps short-term and small-scale. It doesn't lift whole societies out of poverty. And so that means we really need to focus on those bigger issues. Um, I've written about that in my book, Prospects for uh, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity. Uh, and people can inquire through the Cornwall Alliance how to, how to receive that. If they'll just send an email, stewards at cornwallalliance.org. Uh, we can tell them how to receive that book. Yeah, and I'll, and, and uh, when I post the recording, I'll, ma I'll make sure I have those links and stuff in there as well, just so that way anybody that's watching, you guys can uh, you know contact them that way as well. Um, but I, th I think one of the other things that I think to, to really consider too is how this all plays into the gospel and the spread of the gospel. Because I, th cause I think that when we're dealing with a lot of these environmental issues and you know capitalism and socialism, I feel like we get into these like debates and arguments and whatever it is, but it's like we do have a primary issue of the gospel, which as believers, that's supposed to be our main mission. So how, how does that play into this whole conversation? Oh, that is <laughs> crucially important, and that's really the very heart of my concern about the whole thing. Uh, first of all, of course, every soul that exists is going to outlast every nation, every city, every state that ever comes around. Nations are temporal. Souls are eternal. And so we should be far more concerned about the eternal destiny of every individual soul than we are about the 
temporary condition of any nation. Uh, so the gospel is crucial for that. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, for uh, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, so that the, the righteous by faith shall live. This is, this is really, really important. Now, in addition, as people come to know Christ and begin to be discipled, because we're supposed to not just simply get converts, we're supposed to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all things that Christ has commanded us, which is all the things commanded in Scripture, right? Because it's all his word. When we teach people, when we make disciples, they begin to live, to behave in ways that are far more consistent with how God has designed the world to work. And that's part of what lifts them out of poverty. Again, in my book, Prosperity and Poverty, I do some extensive discussion of economic history, and I show that the conquest of poverty happened first and fastest and was the most consistent in the countries that were first transformed by the gospel. And even in countries that were not first transformed by the gospel, uh, when they overcame poverty, it was largely because they, they copied the political order, the social institutions, and so on, that had grown up within Christendom. Uh, and, and they applied those even without the gospel. And yet, we also see that that tends to be very temporary. Uh, the countries that have done that and, and not uh, had a large number of their people convert to Christ have tended to sink back into poverty and to uh, to socialist tyranny and the like. So, yeah, the gospel is crucial to all of this, but not just a, a shallow, you know, fire insurance sort of gospel, but a gospel that brings whole life discipleship, the whole counsel of God from the whole word of God to the whole person for the whole of life. Yeah. Now, what what is, what is it about those countries that let's say let's say they do imitate you know, the, the gospel preaching, you know, nations, right? And they do try to implement some of, some of these things. Why is it that you think that, that they actually do fail? Again, I don't, think that, I don't think that we need to view the gospel as, look, we preach the gospel and this is automatically going to provide economic freedom and no. economic success, but it is often a byproduct of it. So what is it about these other countries that are imitating our, let's say, our principles, but they're not actually believing in the true gospel? Why is it more temporal? Well, um, largely because without a widespread uh, presence of the Christian faith in a population, um, you'll, you'll tend to have more corruption in government. You'll tend to have more corruption in big business as well. And um, as a result, you wind up, when, when there's more corruption, you need more government. You need more controls on people. But those controls slow down the creation of wealth, uh, the, the conquest of poverty, or can push you right back into it. And so what we really see is, is a need to have large portions of, of national populations brought to Christ. Uh, that's, you know, that's what's worked in the past, and it's what's going to work in the future as well. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's fascinating too, even looking at our nation today and how anti-God it's becoming. And as it's becoming more anti-God, we're kind of seeing a lot of the things that we value, like freedom and economic freedom and property rights and all these things are kind of crumbling before our eyes. And we're, right. we're, like, we're literally seeing this fall apart and right in front of us. And so it's like at a certain point, we as Christians, maybe maybe that should be the, our wake-up call of maybe we need to be preaching the gospel more. Win more people to Christ, a lot of this kind of stuff may not be crumbling quite as much because of the byproduct of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, I wonder if you can give me about a two-minute break. Of course, not a problem. Can you do that for me? Of course. All right, great.
with with the well basically how important the gospel is in in regards to the byproduct of people becoming Christians and becoming sanctified and that sort of thing. I think that that's an important thing, I think, for believers to remember that it can't just only be politics. It can't just only be uh, trying to enforce our beliefs into the system. We also have to remember it is about Absolutely. the gospel. If the gospel is preached and people become Christians, they're being sanctified, there's a huge widespread byproduct of that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and to go back to the uh, to the issue of some countries sort of borrowing our principles from us, uh, people will sometimes say, "Oh, well, look, you know, Christian faith isn't all that important to uh, countries rising out of poverty." Look at Japan. Look at Taiwan. Look at South Korea. Uh, the interesting thing is that in all three of those cases, something quite different happened. Uh, when when we defeated Japan in World War II, um, uh, General Douglas MacArthur uh, essentially wrote a new constitution for Japan, modeled it after the American constitution, and put into it principles that reflected uh, the Christian principles that underlie our constitution, the recognition of the sinfulness of man and therefore the need for uh, division of powers and checks and balances and so on in the Japanese government. Uh, but even before that, in the late 1800s, uh, after our Admiral Perry steamed his fleet into Tokyo Harbor and shocked the Japanese with the uh, incredible advanced technology that he had at the time, far beyond anything that they had, uh, the Japanese government <clears throat> uh, put together uh, what was called the Iwakura Mission. And it was a... Uh, a mission of about uh, 20 or so uh, government experts to tour America, Canada, Great Britain, and figure out how is it that these people who are not like us, the the offspring of the gods, <laughs> so to speak, uh, how did they get so advanced? And the members of the mission came back after, I think it was almost a 10-year-long uh, tour, and they said the most important thing uh, that they observed underlying the, the uh, economic development of these Western nations was their morality, and that the most important thing underlying that was their Christianity. And so even though not many of the leaders of, of Japanese government actually became Christians, although it was a much higher percentage than for the Japanese population as a whole, Nonetheless, they intentionally incorporated Christian understanding, Christian morality into their new efforts. And as a result, over a very short period of time, they went from being one of the most backward nations in the world to one of the most forward nations in the world, so much so that by the 19 uh, aughts and tens, they were able to defeat Russia in a major war. And of course, uh, later on, they were quite a challenge to us in World War II. Similarly, Taiwan, uh, following uh, the, the flight of the, uh, the Guomindang, uh, the followers of Chiang Kai-shek from mainland China's communists to Taiwan, uh, they sent uh, K.T. Lee, who was uh, their minister of finance, to the United States to study what made it so that the United States could grow out of poverty. He was a Christian. And he essentially organized Taiwanese uh, economic policy along Christian lines. And a very similar thing happened for South, uh, South Korea as well uh, later on. So the influence of, of this Christian ethos, this Christian worldview, this Christian morality in lifting countries out of, out of poverty is just unmistakable historically. Yeah. Now, you know, what, what do you make of there? Because it seems like there's more of a push within uh, mainstream evangelicalism to embrace a lot of these more socialistic ideologies and, you know, really pushing for more, you know, either bigger government or reparations or whatever, whatever that might be, especially especially within the social justice movement. What do you make of that? And do you feel like there's a disconnect between the gospel and that kind of ideology? I, I think that kind of ideology is actually a threat to the gospel precisely because it misdefines justice. 
It doesn't understand what justice really is uh, from a biblical perspective. Now, I've addressed this in another of my writings called uh, Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. Uh, that too, if, if people will make a donation to Cornwall Alliance of any size, just go to cornwallalliance.org and click on the donate button uh, and ask for social justice. We will send them a free copy of that and 100% of the donation will be, will be tax deductible. Uh, in that booklet, I provide a biblical definition of justice built very carefully out of uh, the use of the Hebrew and Greek words in the various different passages where they appear in both testaments. Uh, and, and I define it as uh, justice means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standards of God's moral law. Now, social justice, which often is not very carefully defined, tends essentially to, to mean something like equal or nearly equal or at least more equal than now distribution of wealth, of uh, property, of, of uh, power, and so on, among all the people in the society in question. And rather than defining justice as what is due in accord with, uh, with people's uh, actions and behavior, uh, it defines justice this way. That is actually to confuse justice with grace. Uh, you know, when we read in Acts chapters 2 and 4, for instance, of the early Christians in Jerusalem, uh, not considering anything that they owned to be their own, but uh, providing for their, their brothers and sisters' needs, uh, that, they, that they were selling lands and giving to the poor and so on. We don't anywhere read there that they considered what belonged to others to be their own, <laughs> Right. I, I could say, yeah, mi casa is su casa. My house is your house. But I couldn't say your house is my house. Right. <laughs> right. Very different perspective. And what actually was going on was grace, charis, the Greek word. And that is giving uh, benefit, giving blessing where it's not earned, where, in fact, it might be the opposite of what's earned. And if we confuse justice and grace, then we're going to confuse the gospel because the gospel is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Confuse justice with grace and we wind up with a works righteousness gospel, with a legalistic gospel instead. So we want to preserve the gospel, but we also want to do real justice to people. Micah 6.8 says, you know, he has shown you a man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So if we want to do that, we need to know what justice really is. And, and I go into that in depth in that booklet, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting when, when you put it in that way and we're looking at the gospel and how it is, like when we become a Christian, we're coming to God saying, I don't deserve this, yet you're offering me this free gift. We're not coming to God saying... <laughs> I deserve to get into heaven. You need to let me in. Like it, it's like that's just not the reality of it. And I feel like this this whole idea of socialism versus capitalism and all that kind of stuff can be a good like visual cue for what the gospel actually is. Yeah, it's not at all surprising that uh, that socialism is uh, one one great author called it the perennial heresy. Uh, it is it is something into which various Christians have fallen from time to time, but I think it's because of a, uh, a, a misreading of various Bible texts. For example, uh, Deuteronomy 15 tells us that every, five, every seven years we're supposed to uh, release debts. The New International Version actually translates it, cancel debts. But the Hebrew verb there doesn't actually mean to cancel. It simply means to let something drop. And elsewhere where it's used, it clearly designates a temporary release of something. Uh, in Exodus uh, 23, for example, in talking about what was to happen on the, on the uh, sabbatical year, people weren't supposed to farm their land in that year. Well, does that mean they'd never farm it ever again? No, it means in the sabbatical year they didn't farm it. So what the sabbatical year debt release law is saying is 
during the sabbatical year, you don't collect on debts. After it's over, you resume collections. Why? Because that way, the debtor can enjoy the sabbatical rest year right along with everybody else. Similarly, the Jubilee year law, which is uh, told about in, in uh, Leviticus 25. Uh, people will read that and say, see, when, uh, when the Jubilee comes around, land that was used as collateral for a, a loan is supposed to be returned to somebody, uh, or rather land purchased is supposed to be returned to the seller. But if they read carefully, they'll notice that the text explicitly says it's not the land he's selling you, it's the, uh, the harvests between the origination of the sale or loan and the Jubilee year. And the amount of that loan is determined by the anticipated value of the harvests. Well, once you've paid off a loan, which is what the harvests do between origination and Jubilee, of course you turn collateral. But there's no redistribution of wealth going on there. Uh, similar things. Uh, there are a number of different passages that people appeal to to try to support socialism out of the Bible. And in each instance, uh, I think a careful reading shows otherwise, and that's what I explain in my booklet, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice. Yeah, and, and, I, think, and I think that it's really important that, that Christians do understand that difference. And again, because we are talking about the gospel, and oftentimes what, what can happen is we can do something out of good intentions— but then the repercussions of that can be vitally dangerous to not only the gospel, but people's eternal souls. And that's why it's so important that I think that we get this right for sure. Yes. Right. You know, one of the, one of the most important things I think is for a lot of people to learn history. Uh, and unfortunately many people are just too young, uh, and, and have been in public schools that have been dominated by socialist thought for generations. And they don't remember what has happened in communist and socialist countries. Uh, we really need for people to, to learn some history and, and realize why it is that massive movements of migration come into the United States, not into Venezuela, not into Guatemala, not into Cuba, not into Russia, not into China. Yeah, that, 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 again, that, that's a very good point. Um, so kind of as we're wrapping up, like what's the best way for people to be following you, following your writing, kind of learn more about what you're talking about so that way they can get educated on all these things? Sure. The uh, simplest, best way is just to go to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org online. They can subscribe to our free email newsletter. They can read hundreds of articles and very major papers there. They can also follow us on Facebook, just facebook.com slash Cornwall Alliance. And we have a YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, where they can see a large number of videos that we've done. Uh, so all of those are, are ways to do it. Uh, we also have a, a blog that is specifically geared toward millennials, uh, some younger writers, and uh, uh, we, we intend it to reach younger readers and viewers. And that is called earthrisingblog.com, earthrisingblog.com. So yeah, definitely. And, and for everybody as well that's watching this, I will be sure to put the links uh, down below in the recording, uh, and that'll be going out on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, all, all the all the good stuff. But but thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I think I think it's really important that we really understand a lot of these issues. So it was, it was really good to really kind of dive into a lot of this. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Glad to do it, and I hope we get other opportunities. Yeah, definitely. That sounds great. And then for everybody as well, we will be back here uh, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, again, we're going to be with Jerry Wayne. Um, again, you'll remember him from his confrontation with Joe Biden. That's going to be a fascinating conversation. Um, and then if you guys want to do support us here at the GK, uh, we do have our membership program. Uh, it's $10 a month. You can get it's called our plugged in membership. Uh, you get extra access to our, uh, our online conference that we did, the Destroy Social Justice Conference. Uh, as well as a lot of other exclusive uh, perks and discounts in the store and that sort of thing as well. So head on over there to gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in for uh, that information. And then, uh, yeah, we will see you back here tomorrow with Jerry Wayne. And again, thanks so much for tuning in.
This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC.